I thought on this last Lord's Day of the year, given the fact that our first Lord's Day of the new year will not be till the 6th of January, that I should consider with you some teaching of the Word of God apropos the new year. I believe it was Charles Lamb, the essayist, who once wrote that no one views January 1st with indifference. Our lives are marked by the passage of the years, and as it happens, we mark the beginning of another year on the 1st of January. We might mark it at any point in the calendar, but for some time now, it's been January 1st. So it's a time to think about our lives, what they have become, what they have not become, what they might and should become. And very often at this time of year, we do think about such things. I chose for my text the opening paragraph of the prophecy of Haggai, one of the post-exilic prophets, because it's one of the principal texts in the Bible on the subject of self-examination, or as the prophet puts it, on the subject of considering our ways, or paying attention to our ways. By way, in the Bible, as you know, is meant our way of life, our behavior, So let's begin reading. We're only reading the first 11 verses of chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The second year of Darius was 520 B.C., Remember now the historical situation. Cyrus had been killed in battle on the eastern frontier of the Persian Empire ten years before, in 530 B.C. It was Cyrus, remember, who had permitted the Jews to return to the promised land from their exile in Babylon, actually even earlier than the 70 years that uh, had been prophesied by Jeremiah. Had, uh, com- had been completed. Babylon had fallen to Persia, and the new government had a different and more tolerant and generous policy toward captive peoples. The Persians even funded the rebuilding of sanctuaries that had been destroyed by the Babylonians across the reach of the empire. As we read in Ezra, some Jews had returned to the promised land immediately, And the foundation of the temple was soon rebuilt. But there was opposition from the peoples around them, uh, surrounding Judea, and work on the temple ground to a halt, as we also read in Ezra. Darius was a Persian general who had assumed the position of emperor when the emperor Cambyses had died Having restored peace in the empire after a period of instability, the program of restoring uh, national sanctuaries that had been destroyed by the Babylonians was recommenced. Haggai describes events that occurred between 1520 and 1515 BC. It was during those years that the temple was rebuilt, and not only with the permission of Darius, but at least with the promise of funding from the imperial treasury. The work performed 
under the leadership of the governor, Zerubbabel, the high priest, Joshua, and the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. But the prophecy begins at a time, as will become clear in the following verses, before that rebuilding had begun. As Haggai begins, the temple remained nothing but a foundation. Eighteen years had passed since the Jews first returned to Judea from Babylon, and their situation was hardly encouraging. They were eking out an existence, hardly thriving, and there didn't seem to be any visible indication that Yahweh, the God of Moses and David and Elijah, was astir on his people's behalf. The sixth month would be August-September, the time for the harvest of the trees and the vines, three months after the harvest of the grain. So people would be very conscious of what kind of harvests they had had. Zerubbabel, which is a Babylonian name, was the civil governor, so he was an appointee of the Persians. But he was a Jew, a descendant of David and a godly man. Joshua, also a godly man, had returned with the exiles from Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, it's important for you to realize nobody was saying in the Judean community, nobody was saying that the temple shouldn't be rebuilt. They simply thought that now was not the time. Everyone was busy with his own life, and as a matter of fact, there simply wasn't the money to fund such a major project. Imperial monies that had been hoped for were instead being diverted to a major military campaign against Egypt, the campaign that would put an end to the greatness of Egypt for all the years since uh, between then and now. What is more, the people were discouraged. Since their return from exile, nothing had gone as well as they had hoped. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? The people had apparently found time and money and energy to build their own homes. It's time to make a similar investment in the house of God. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld or have Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, 
on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. So the Lord comes to the point. The reason their harvest had been poor, the reason they had not prospered once back in the Holy Land was because they had not been faithful to the covenant God made with them. The unfinished temple was proof that their priorities were misplaced. The Lord of hosts was certainly capable of giving them his blessing, bumper harvests that would have made them well-to-do, if not rich, but he had not done so. Why? They had put their own interests before the Lord's. They had not sought first his kingdom and his righteousness, but rather their own food and clothing and shelter. If you remember, and this is very important in the prophets, the failure of harvest, the futility of agricultural effort, was precisely the curse the Lord had promised to visit upon his people if and when they broke his covenant. You can read that in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. So far, the word of God. Twice in these verses, first in verse 5 and then in verse 7, the Lord calls upon his people to consider their ways. This consideration of our ways, this paying attention to our lives, ordinarily is called self-examination. The need for it is obvious. So obvious that the duty of self-examination is taught and has long been taught by non-Christians as well as by believers. Here is an English translation of a verse written by Pythagoras in Greek in the 6th century BC. Let not sleep come upon thy languid eyes before each daily action thou hast scanned. What done? What left undone? What done amiss? From first to last examine all and then blame what is wrong in what is right rejoice. And here is Seneca, the first century Roman moralist, a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. I shall keep watching myself continually and a most useful habit shall review each day. For this is what makes us wicked, that no one of us looks back over his own life. Our thoughts are devoted only to what we are about to do, and yet our plans for the future always depend upon the past. But far more important to us, the Bible lays this duty upon us in many places. Paul famously told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And Paul spoke similarly to the Galatians. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. John, in his second letter, urges us to watch ourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. You've got to pay attention to your life to win a full reward. The reason why we have to consider our ways, pay attention to our lives, is because it is usually not obvious to us what is actually happening in our hearts or what we are actually doing with our lives. We, frankly, tend to think better of ourselves than we should of our motives, of our actions. 
We often deceive ourselves about ourselves, perhaps most profoundly in respect to our sins of omission. All the things we might have done and never did. So we read, for example, in Proverbs 20, verse 5, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. What's actually in your heart? Well, it takes some effort to learn that, even for you to learn what's in your own heart. Similarly, in Revelation 3.17, the warning. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. A little bit of self-examination would have taught you about yourself. The Lord is saying um, to those uh, people in the church in Laodicea. One of the greatest books ever written on sin in a believer's life is John Owen's masterpiece, Indwelling Sin in Believers, published in 1668. The full title of the book is The Nature, Power, Deceit, and Prevalency of the Remainders of Indwelling Sin in Believers. It's that word deceit that explains the need for self-examination, the need for believers to consider their ways. It's so easy for us to ignore the unhappy truth about ourselves, to fail to notice our hypocrisy, our failures of omission as well as commission, our lack of progress in the Christian life. It's so easy to become satisfied with a Christian life that on honest inspection would appear far less faithful than you take it to be. Perhaps a Christian life that almost everyone who is inspecting it from outside would judge it to be less faithful than you take it to be. After all, these Jews were praying. They were gathering for worship on the Sabbath day. They believed, and in certain ways, they were faithfully practicing their faith. But it was not obvious to them what they were not doing. They were self-deceived and self-satisfied. And only self-examination, considering their ways would reveal that to them. The masters of the Christian life used to talk a great deal about the need for self-examination, the whys of it, and the methods to be used. In his masterpiece, The Holy War, John Bunyan has a character named Mr. Prywell. Bunyan describes Mr. Prywell as a lover of man's soul, who loved to look into the very bottom of matters. He was, Bunyan says, Jealous, that is, vigilant in seeking after the truth. He would ask of man's soul the hard questions and keep asking until he had honest answers. He wanted to know the truth about man's soul. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. What about the secret sins in man's soul's heart? What about his prayer life? What does he pray for really, urgently, earnestly? And how long? Does he pray for such things? And what about his besetting sin? Has he grown tired of it and indifferent toward it? Or is he still doing battle against it? What about his love of money or praise or comfort or food or drink? Who am I really? What kind of life am I actually living? Perhaps as others see me, but still much more as God sees me. To ask and answer that kind of question was Mr. Prywell's concern. And that was Bunyan's brilliant way 
of teaching his readers the importance and the nature of self-examination. But self-examination has fallen on hard times in our day and for a variety of reasons. There has been a class of Christian writers who have argued that self-examination is not only unnecessary, at least most of the time, but is actually harmful. Their argument is that concentrating on yourself, thinking all the time about your own life, what's going on in your heart and in your behavior, interferes with the concentration you ought to be placing on Christ himself. Self-examination, in their view, tends to distract the believer, tends to foster self-righteousness, the idea that your salvation, that your peace with God depend on what you do, how you live, not as much on what Christ has done for you or Christ's life by his spirit in you. In most higher life versions of Christian spirituality, from Hannah Whitehall Smith to Keswick, even the most recent emphases of our own sonship school, the practice of self-examination is not particularly encouraged, and it is often positively frowned on. I actually think there is something significant to be said for that viewpoint, for that concern about self-examination. There are certainly people, and perhaps at certain times all of us to a degree, who focus too much on themselves, who think too much about themselves, who are too preoccupied with what's going on within themselves. After all, who of us would disagree with C.S. Lewis's observation in the Screwtape Letters that the very characteristic of hell is a ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. In Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis reports that after his conversion, he found himself liberated from what he called that fussy attentiveness which I had so long paid to the progress of my own opinions and the states of my own mind. In a healthy way, he began to forget himself, which is something that all of us certainly ought to do. He didn't deny the need for self-examination, but he thought it more of a discipline to be employed at specific times for specific purposes. Still, the problem with any denial of the obligation of self-examination is twofold. First, and obviously the Bible teaches us explicitly in a number of places to examine the lives we live, the thoughts we think, the words we speak, the deeds we perform. Second, our salvation and our peace with God do depend in an important way on what we do and how we live. Who can read the Bible and think otherwise? And so it is that John MacLeod, the Scottish theologian, in a very perceptive remark, said, Our sturdy fathers would not be put off the scent by the suggestion that in examining themselves, they were pulling up the roots of their faith to see if, they were, if it were growing. Perhaps a greater reason for a declining interest in the practice of self-examination, especially among serious Christians of the Reformed type, is that an overemphasis on it in some of our circles, including some of our Presbyterian circles, seem to make of the practice one that only super-Christians could perform. 
The way self-examination was described in work after work actually discouraged people from the practice. John Fletcher of Madeley, the 18th century Great Awakening theologian, pastor, and preacher, one of the first important Wesleyan theologians, was an Arminian in his theology, but his character and his ministry was such that he was universally admired by the Calvinistic side of the Great Awakening. Fletcher composed a list of self-examination questions for serious Christians to put to themselves every night at the end of the day. Here's the list. Did I awake spiritual, and was I watchful in keeping my mind from wandering this morning when I was rising? Have I this day got nearer to God in times of prayer, or have I given way to a lazy, idle spirit? Has my faith been weakened by unwatchfulness or quickened by diligence this day? Have I this day walked by faith and eyed God in all things? Have I denied myself in all unkind words and thoughts? Have I delighted in seeing others preferred before me? Have I made the most of my precious time as far as I had light, strength, and opportunity? Have I kept the issues of my heart in the means of grace so as to profit by them? What have I done this day for the souls and bodies of God's dear saints? Nine. Have I laid out anything to please myself when I might have saved the money for the cause of God? Have I governed well my tongue this day, remembering that in a multitude of words there wanteth not sin? Eleven. In how many instances have I denied myself? Do my life and conversation, that is my behavior, adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ? Just to read that list makes me tired. My first thought is that if I conducted that exercise every day, I would go to bed every night discouraged and defeated. Because, of course, and in the nature of the case, the answer to most of those questions would always be either no or not nearly enough. I can see asking myself one of those questions every evening and getting through the list maybe three times in the month, but every night would be wearying, discouraging work. One must live the Christian life as well as examine how one is living it. And so far as I can see, that sort of constant, elaborate, time-consuming, daily and inevitably discouraging self-examination is nowhere taught to be what God requires of his children. There can be, at least in this case, too much of a good thing. But a third reason why self-examination has fallen on hard times in our day is the simple reason why it has never been carefully and faithfully done by the majority of believers. It's hard work, even if it's done only from time to time. It's often unhappy work. And we resist the idea that salvation, however much a gift of God's grace, is and must be hard work for us, that we have to expend effort that it requires a great deal of us. The fact is, and this fact lies on the face of our text this evening, we do need, if not every moment of every day, if not every night, 
We do need from time to time to consider our ways. These folk were religious people like you and me. To some degree, they were committed to doing the right thing. They intended for the temple to be built, and so far as we know, they certainly, and so certainly as far as they would themselves have said, they would do it when the time was right. They would make the sacrifices necessary to rebuild and restore the temple to its rightful place at the center of their religious life. These were people who prayed in their homes, who observed God's law. At least Haggai does not accuse them of having forsaken the law of God. Indeed, what deserves to be noticed in the book is, and this you would read if you continued from where we left off, from 12, verse 12 onward, following upon hearing this word from Haggai, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and the people as a whole, repented of their delay and immediately set to work. We even read in verse 12 that the people feared the Lord. All it took for them to turn and to do what was right was to be shown that they had allowed themselves to slip into a condition of spiritual lethargy, indolence, self-satisfaction, and indifference. And we've all been there, haven't we? I certainly have. How many times in your life How many times in mine have we grown spiritually sleepy, inactive, dull, cold, thoughtless? Every Christian has. And every master of the Christian life warns us against this inevitable slippage. Indeed, can any of us deny that he or she has wasted far too much of our lives in just that kind of state in which we are as One wise man put it a long time ago, laboriously doing not much of anything at all. Certainly not much to the real benefit of our souls or the souls of those around us. We've stood still rather than advanced in obedience, in service, in devotion, in prayer, in the word of God, in the love of others, in everything else that ought to be characteristic of a Christian life. We can see ourselves, this is my point, you can see yourself very easily in these folk to whom Haggai ordered them to consider their ways. In how many ways and for how long a time have we in one way or another busied ourselves with our own homes, our own affairs, and ignored the condition of the Lord's house, whether we're speaking of the Lord's house as his church or we're speaking about the house he is building in our own hearts. After all, paying proper attention to the latter will always mean more attention to the former. I have to admit that one of the greatest regrets of my life is found here. Thankfully, I can say that I have had times in my life when I was eagerly seeking the Lord and greater and higher things through faith in Him. I was taking stock of how and for how long I prayed of my reading of the Bible. I was hard at work seeking to kill some of my sins or bring more and more to expression some of the features of my life in Christ. But I know that there have been other times when I was practicing my faith more out of habit than out of eager interest in spiritual advancement, more by rote than by a heartfelt seeking after Christ, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, walking with God. 
Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that in those times I wasn't living the Christian life, only that I wasn't living it with the enthusiasm and determination and intention which it deserves and requires to be lived well. I was standing still when I should have been moving forward. I was waiting for heaven to come to me rather than, as the Puritan Thomas Watson put it, taking heaven by storm. I sometimes wonder, don't you? After the years of my life, what I might have become, how far I might have traveled in the life of faith if I had always pressed forward as I sometimes have pressed forward. Since the Bible describes this as a typical feature of the spiritual history of God's people, and since virtually every Christian I've ever read or have ever talked to about such things admits it to be the case in his or her own life, I have no doubt that Haggai's exhortation, Consider Your Ways, is addressed to and is of vital importance to every Christian, you and I included. Malcolm Muggeridge entitled his autobiography, which if you haven't read, you certainly should, Chronicles of Wasted Time. More than once I thought that would be a perfectly apt title for the story of my life. And I feel free to admit that to you because I suspect every serious Christian in this sanctuary thinks about his or her life in the same way I do. We've wasted too much time. We've sat still for months, even years, when we might all the while have been growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Why does the Lord send as much suffering into our lives as he does? Because there isn't enough self-examination being done by us, and he will shove us forward if we will not take steps ourselves. And why do we find it so easy to become habitual and less intentional about our life of faith? Because we weren't considering our ways. So what does it mean to consider our ways? How is that done? Well, what Haggai teaches us is that self-examination ought to be and will be in a thoughtful and committed Christian life, primarily occasional and circumstantial. In this case, the people were not doing well. They were not enjoying the blessings of God's favor. They could not see in their circumstances the evidence that the Lord was rewarding their faithfulness as he promised to do. It's precisely that fact that Haggai is going to go on to emphasize throughout the rest of the book. They ought to be enjoying the Lord's provision, but they are not. That's why they should consider their ways. There is something amiss, something that should prompt them, should have before this prompted them to wonder why their circumstances were as they were. Now to be sure, even the most godly and the most intentional believers can suffer want, loss, and deprivation. We know that. Poverty and hardship are hardly always proof that God is judging his people for want of faith or faithful service. Job is but one of many examples given to us in the Bible of faithful saints suffering the sort of difficulties these folk were suffering in Haggai's day, but not because of any unfaithfulness on their part. But in this case, it was poor harvests that should have prompted these folks at least to consider whether they were neglecting their duties before God and were missing his blessing for that reason. In other cases, it might be other things. In the church in Corinth, 
It was a variety of misbehavior that had come to characterize their life together. Disunity in the body, a lack of repentance for obvious sins, a failure of of sincerity in seeking the Lord. That's what prompted Paul to urge these believers to examine themselves. I suppose you could be prompted to consider your ways by any number of things that you would notice along the path of your life that in one way or another raise for you the question whether the Lord is pleased or unhappy with you. A dull heart toward God. You know when you have that. A lack of prayer. A lack of interest in his word. Sins that seem to be renewing their strength. Trouble in your relationships. Indifference toward other people, a lack of sympathy, kindness, involvement, and so on. And how is self-examination done? Once we realize that it needs to be done, well, here Haggai brings the word of God to bear on the circumstances of these Jews. Not simply the word of God as it was delivered by Haggai and Zechariah, but as well the word of God that had been written centuries before, in which had been promised poor harvests for God's people, should they prove unfaithful to the covenant that God had made with them. To say that poor harvests are not always the result of unfaithfulness to God is certainly not to say that they are never the result of such unfaithfulness. Holy Scripture addresses us in regard to virtually every conceivable aspect of our lives. There will always be scripture to ponder, to pray over, to compare with the ways of our thoughts and our lives. With the Bible in our hands, we'll always find a clear standard by which to consider our ways, to evaluate our conduct, to examine our hearts, if only we will demand of ourselves an honest reckoning. And of course, the more we employ the words of God in the examination of ourselves, the better we will become at maintaining a realistic, an honest, a searching assessment of ourselves. The less we will indulge indulge the wishful thinking that too often masquerades as self-knowledge. The fact, just this fact, that there are probably a good number of Christians, a sizable portion of Christians whose knowledge of themselves is inferior to the knowledge that other believers have of them should put us on our mettle. That should not be true of us, brothers and sisters. No one should know ourselves better, honestly, searchingly. No one should know ourselves better than anyone else, save God himself. And if we do that kind of self-examination when prompted to do so. And if we have Christian blood in our veins, we'll continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Take your example from Augustine. More than any man before him, and more than most who have come after him, Augustine left us a record of his self-examination. If you're keeping a journal you too will write a similar thing, a confessions, as Augustine did, evaluating your life in keeping with the profile of true godliness that is provided for us in the Bible. 
If you don't keep a journal, at least don't let the year begin without considering your ways, at least in some significant dimensions. What needs to change? What aims and goals ought you to set for yourself in the new year as a Christian and for Christ's sake? And then test yourself from time to time. The new year is upon us, brothers and sisters. Time's a-wasting. Still, there is so much left for us to do and to become and to enjoy. Consider your ways. Amen.